Hi, and welcome to Season 3 of the Papa PhD Podcast. To start this new season, I'm bringing you today a great conversation with Dr. Mrim Butla, a neuroplasticity PhD turned career coach who has been on the show in Season 2, but in French. Mrim has put a lot of thought into the conundrum that is promoting career readiness for PhD researchers and shared her reflections and some nuggets during our conversation. So stick around. I'm sure you'll enjoy her energy and her insights. I reached out to you because we had this conversation in uh, the fall in French, and I was thinking, ah, I'm, I'm eager to kind of do one in English about transferable skills, right? That what are really the dissociation between knowledge and skills, and not only skills that you gain, but also skills that you like using. Because the worst thing that you can do in your career is actually become good at something you don't like to do. And I think as PhDs, we tend to want to do, we have to do it all for our first round of thing in order to get to a PhD. But it doesn't mean that we cannot um, give ourselves permission and afford to actually uh, then go towards careers that are better fit for us as individuals. And so uh, I just wanted to maybe have uh, uh, this conversation about how to give yourself permission to be happy at work, right? To actually know what, uh, uh, what a good fit looks like for you and why you can actually buy that clarity then be more credible and competitive at convincing employers that this is what you bring to the table. So I know we, we ended our conversation on that and I wanted to uh, do another round to go deeper into this with you. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. Welcome to Papa PhD, Marim. Thank you so much for having me again, and this time in our non-native language. Exactly. So nice to be here again. <laughs> I'm super happy to have you here again. We had a great conversation in French in the fall, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. and uh, and I, I find uh, that this question of um, Becoming conscious that you can vie for a career that fits with you and where you'll thrive and be fulfilled, uh, I think it's a very, very interesting point. And uh, it's easy when you move domain or spaces, like from the academic space to the non-academic space, to say, okay, this is not my space. I'm going to settle with, with whichever first thing comes. And then it, there is this danger of going down this rabbit hole of be becoming very good at something that is not aligned with your with your passions, that is not aligned with your core values, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, super, super happy to have you to, here to talk about this. Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the biggest points, right? It's uh, when you change careers, you have to think about two things. What do you move away from and what do you move towards? Mm -hmm. And I find a lot of PhDs know what they want to move away from, but they're not very clear what they want to maintain that they actually liked about mm -hmm. their PhD process because by that time, everything feels painful, right? Mm -hmm. And we know from neuroscience in our brain that our brain tends to overemphasize things we're missing and take for granted things we're enjoying. And so from the neuroscience perspective, it was always tickling me to understand, okay, how can I, in the coaching bubble that I create with my clients, um, recenter them mm -hmm. around, okay, what is it that you want to maintain? And what is it that you want to change so that you can understand yourself at those three layers that we're talking about in the fall, which is job responsibilities. What would you be doing every day? The culture, meaning uh, the pace of how things get done and what kind of colleagues do you have? Mm. And then the third is what's the end goal? What do you want to understand or contribute to in terms of industries, impact areas, or big questions you want to help tackle in the world? And I find that PhDs, because we're so channeled in uh, the knowledge uh, generation and deployment, and that's a great endeavor, we tend to discount what is the um, dynamic 
of the lab, how things get done, what kind of mm-hmm. colleagues you have, and then what are the kinds of skill sets you're developing. And then another point that I find very often we discard uh, and, and devalue the skills that we have gained, but we even more so have to become so good at so many different things that we don't give ourselves permission to really look at, okay, I know how to do this, but have I become very good at something I don't like to do? Mm-hmm. And for me, that was MATLAB. I am good analytically. I hate, I hate debugging loops. And, and, um, and I had other areas like mentoring students, presenting at conferences, mm-hmm. having stimulating conversations to frame problems into really uh, measurable units and then collecting data about those units, analyzing them. But then when it became repetitive, I got so bored. Right. And so these are the kinds of things that I look forward to discussing with you today. And and, and I'm super happy that you're mentioning it like you are, because I do uh, tend to, uh, especially when I talk with the, with students that are beginning their PhD to, to say, start working early on, on, you know, imagining different parallel universes where you become different things. But it's true that at least in my example and people around me that I know, we've, we only woke up to that necessity at, in the last or, you know, second second to last year of our phd and i'd really love to have you know your your uh, your vision and and also your insights on okay this is like a, a, an urgent matter you have not done work previously in the second third fourth year of your phd and things are going to change fairly soon so how how do we first calm down and what's the strategic way to go about reframing these things and, and, and gaining this confidence in yourself and in, in the fact that you can, you deserve to have a good job, you deserve to have something that fulfills you? Yeah, so I think that, um, I mean, early on, just being aware of what you're about to go through and then every semester or every year taking a step back about whether you like it and recognize what you have become better at is really mm-hmm. critical right and i think in those three layers that we mentioned if we go for the job layer there are really uh five pillars in a phd that are really really important and the first one is of course the knowledge you gather you become an expert at tackling not only the historical but current dynamics about how your field has tried to find elegant theories to capture a Mm -hmm. broad body of knowledge, data, and meta-analyses about something you want to solve, right? And this is really valuable. But as you tackle that really um, cutting-edge knowledge contribution, you're developing also four kinds of skills that are super valuable wherever you go. First off is your analytical skills, whether you're in the humanities and social sciences, where you focus on qualitative analysis, which means qualitative data points of of things, or in the STEM field where you develop more quantitative analysis, you're becoming good at critically thinking through, is that piece of data relevant, valid, and reliable for me to use as an argument towards my new theory and position Mm -hmm. to test that hypothesis? And then, of course, synthesizing a massive amount of data into clear and concise hypotheses, you can then operationalize your research on. That's really critical because wherever I went in my career afterwards, I used that kind of approach of saying, okay, what are we looking at? What do we know about this? How do I synthesize what I know into a next step that I can convince my boss to give me funding to get to advance towards, right? So I started doing that in research But I worked in the private sector in startups. I worked in consulting, worked in a number of uh, academic careers outside of science, building student affairs and student support types of things. Um, And it was always the same. Help me understand what is needed. Help me understand what you've tried before that worked, what you've tried before that didn't work, so I can synthesize what I understand. And then we can identify and build on that common ground of, yeah, that might be the next thing to try. 
So that's the first one. And I think a lot of PhDs, because we are so surrounded by people who think that way and are very effective in its critical thinking and framing of new hypotheses, we take that for granted. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people will really appreciate that because we're so fast at it and we have a very good BS detector when Mm -hmm. the logic doesn't work out. Right, because if your logic doesn't work out, you're going to get destroyed at your next truck dock, uh, or your defense of your quals, and uh, you learn fast how to be very diligent about mm-hmm. putting hypotheses forth uh, that are, yeah, there might be some confound and future research might be needed X Y Z, but it's solid enough mm-hmm. for everybody in the room to say, yeah, try that. Right. And so that's the first one. And I think it's really uh, a very sharp one that I've used uh, in my in my career. The second one is the incredible range of communication skills that we develop to kind of synthesize that recommendation and communicate it to a different kind of audience, uh, whether it's in writing, by writing for academic papers, whether mm-hmm. it is a blog format, whether it is to write a paper for a class, um, or whether it is um, public speaking, teaching um Talk talks, uh, presenting at conferences, and uh, defending your dissertation it requires a certain poise and a certain knowledge, but also a certain adaptation to your different audiences in order for you to be effective as a communicator. Mm-hmm. And of course, that uh, carries on when you need funding for a new project or raising funds for a startup or in an interview, convincing somebody to part with their money to be part of their team. Mm-hmm. All of this is um, uh, really hinging upon your ability to understand your audience, understand what you have in common with them and putting in front of them things in the language that they find credible, that they find valid so that they will um, give you their buy-in, whatever that end result is. The third one of our skill set as PhDs is our ability, and we, we really discount that one, and I think it's a very precious one, is our project management skills. Our ability to have multiple deadlines and multiple projects and to discern what do we need to do today in order to arrive at that last point of that deadline, whether it's submitting an abstract, submitting a grant, or... Um, or meeting our deadline for qualifying exams and then backtracking into that to know what are the resources or brain or time and people around us that we need to align in order to keep everybody updated, um, moving forward and accountable to their piece so that we can submit that abstract by mm-hmm. the deadline so that we can submit or, or uh, qual exam or defend our dissertation by then. And those project management skills can be expended from our time to our energy to uh, expenses or finance things. And a lot of people don't realize that as PhDs, we are really project managers mm-hmm. and very effective in that. And the final one, which I think is a big one that we discount also, is our entrepreneurial mindset. You don't go into science or research if you want to just summarize what we've done. You got to add a unique something new in order to be credible and to be funded to do a PhD. And of course, there is an expectation that everything you do henceforth is going to be strategic, feasible, and an endeavor that will enrich the body of knowledge you want to participate in as a thought leader. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the, we focus a lot on the, the knowledge piece, but there are those four um, skill sets that as a career coach that has worked with PhDs, MBAs, undergrads, and now a student in international relations and diplomacy, they come up all the time. And I all developed them when I was in my PhD and cultivated them, adapting my language about how is business talking about those skills? How is the nonprofit talking about uh, about those skills, has government or multilaterals talking about those skills. But at the end of the day, the core of them is always there. And so I talk about those skills as gold. Mm-hmm. You can't buy anything with gold. <laughs> so you have to translate the gold of those experiences and those skills into the currency of your next job. Right. And so that's the difference. And that's what I do a lot in my career coaching, transforming the gold of the PhD experience into the Uh, currency of consulting, currency of financial services, currency of startups, currency of product management, currency of what have you, Mm -hmm. so that you can adopt the right terminology to be more um, 
credible for the next step you want to take. I love the metaphor. And um, it's really interesting the way you have really structured it because uh, it, it all makes sense and it's all true. But one thing that may happen and that happens often when you when you want to go to, to this uh, place where you need to use different currency is that you feel like an imposter because uh, you don't have the language, you don't know the culture. And I guess what you're saying is that you, you've been helping people you know, learning what this language is in different uh, domains, and you you mentioned yeah. quite you know many different mm -hmm. ones. So, what I what I would ask is, uh, what would you say is a major obstacle, initial obstacle to to uh, to changing this language, to kind of changing this narrative of oh, but I I was at the bench pipetting things. Uh, yes, okay, I had a I had a PhD. Uh, I had a, a, a PhD, you know, uh, I did a PhD project. So, but I don't have, uh, I'm not a PMP, right? I don't, I don't have skills uh, that, that my employer will actually appreciate or, or, or maybe accept. How do you change? Maybe there's some inner, you know, self-talk that you need to change, but then also your language, you need to learn this new lingo, right? Yeah. So I think that um, I, I, I agree with all of the above. And to that, I would offer three different ways. First, Uh, as you were asking the question, what can academia do to support PhD students? And I think that if they had an annual review process with PhD advisors and their students, having these five things, what have you gotten better at your knowledge of the field? What have you gotten better at your analytical, critical thinking skills? What have you gotten better in your communication skills, project management, and innovation mindsets? Mm -hmm. In this past year, it will change the dynamic of the value perceived and real that PhDs feel they are gaining from their PhD. It will make them more resilient, it will make them more productive, and it will definitely make them more aware of mm -hmm. the overall package they're gaining by pursuing a PhD and how they can channel that into academia, industry, or others. So I think that's one of the things that can be done, right? And I think in France, they have some of those uh, newly passed laws that try to scaffold what are those core competencies that students can um, use a PhD to springboard towards the next level of effectiveness in those. I don't know what are the, the core pillars they have, but in my practice, those five seem to always be something that uh, I can fall back on when I, when I have people in my office. For sure. Now, I actually, I have a question, mm -hmm. not a provocative question, but uh, which is the following. Given your experience, given that you've helped, helped or you've, you are helping people, you know, uh, gear themselves and, and kind of uh, pivot to different domains, You know, everyone knows why the, why society needs an engineer. Everyone knows uh, why uh, society and companies need MBAs, let's say. Why does society in the 21st century need PhDs in your experience? And you can talk of a specific domain, a specific space, or in general. You know, because some, some people may be thinking, oh, this this because a lot of, some people may be thinking, this PhD thing, it's a dead end. Uh, and... Uh, Why are, why are universities paying people to study these things and that, that end up you know, being published and read by two, three people? Do you have an answer for that? I know it's kind of a productive question, but I'd love to have your take on it. And, and especially thinking, thinking about the employers that you know or the types of employers you know, what, they, what do they get from hiring a PhD? Well, they get a PMP, an MBA, and uh, a master's in whatever field. They get all in one, right? Because as PhDs, we do all of those things and then some. And mm -hmm. trust me, I've worked with all of those different populations and therefore I've seen the skills and the level of incredible discipline it takes to get there, right? So, so I'd say, so minus, minus the lingo. So there, there must be some, no, you know. It's, yeah, no, it's terminology. So as an MBA, you're going to spend a whole semester and a half looking at financial statements and being good at doing pivot tables in Excel. That's going to make you feel and come across as credible, explaining mm -hmm. numbers of increasing revenue and decreasing variable and fixed costs for companies to become more profitable and them to maximize shareholder value. It's not rocket science, 
But the way that they are defining those terminologies and the way they're like, oh, the taxes and the uh, financial statement it takes to um, look at variable versus fixed costs and da 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 da. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we can pick it up very quickly. And I know a number of companies like the consulting firm and others that will train PhDs by sending them to five weeks summer MBAs. And then we'll be up to speed on the logic and on the, the actual terminology and be ready to go and function at, uh, uh, at uh, uh, management consulting firms like uh, McKinsey, BCG and others. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's the difference between what, the core skill set are versus the domain of knowledge you apply to. And an MBA develops critical thinking skills to a certain degree, although some MBAs are more successful at that than others. Mm -hmm. They will develop communication skills with putting good slides together and writing some decent business memos. They will develop project management skills because they have multiple classes and projects to manage. And they will develop to some extent you know, innovative mindset, depending on the, the, the major they choose, right? And then the knowledge is, okay, how are those things applying to marketing, which is increasing revenue by either attracting new clients or cultivating clients in a way that becomes more loyal to mm-hmm. the brand that you want to increase the value of or finance. Okay. How do you put together Excel spreadsheets to look at the past and project the future in terms of revenue projections, cost projections, and whatever you can save or increase in revenue to make your business more profitable? And what can you shave off in your supply chain of commodities mm-hmm. coming in, manufacturing costs and distribution costs in order for you to be able to, uh, in your supply chain group, make this as efficient as possible? Uh, what can you do on the strategy end of, okay, we've functioned in a certain way. What can we move and do in a slightly different way to increase revenue and decrease cost in a way that is going to involve some change management, which means changing hearts and changing uh, head uh, thoughts at the same time what can we do so that people are less resistant to adopt our new process and procedure and work all together to build a more efficient um workplace workflow and others so these Mm -hmm. are the strategy people the hr people and everybody in their own department working together so i just gave you a broad idea of what business is about in about five minutes and these are all of the different things that in an mba you will use those four skill set to gain a better understanding in so that when you're teleported to a fortune 500 company you know what are the current uh, pieces that mm-hmm. you need to move and how to move them towards higher efficiency, lower cost and higher revenue. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's not mm-hmm. rocket science. Mm-hmm. Now, the way you're going to be doing it is by adopting the right um, uh, terminology. And I highly recommend the book that's called the 10 day MBA, where they actually, um, these are MBAs from Harvard business school who wrote uh, 10 uh, the 10-day uh, chapter about what they remember about their MBA in terms of strategy, finance, uh, accounting, marketing, ops, uh, and all of those different functions within business. And you can gobble them up one chapter at a time. I would recommend for PhDs to start with strategy, operations, and marketing because you're going to recognize everything you're doing in those things. Operations by how you run your research, strategy by how you think about the next piece of um, research you're going to put together or the next research project you're going to put together or marketing with how you apply for either funding or a space to present at a conference and how you coalesce everybody to kind of believe in you as Mm -hmm. the next brand to be a thought leader in your field and then go for something more technical on, on terms of terminology with you know finance and accounting which requires a little bit more of oh what's a fixed cost or a cost of customer acquisition or some of those technical terms Terms mm-hmm. that once you read the definition, you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I got it. Yeah. Forward, right. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. The PhD enables you to sharpen those four skill sets and then become much more flexible at applying that to a different level of knowledge or domain of knowledge, which includes how business works with an MBA. That's a knowledge piece. Mm-hmm. So I hope that helps. So, but we. 
Definitely, and and uh, and I think it it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I know someone who did their PhD and then went to do an MBA, a uh, full MBA, and and are now very successful working in finance and again counseling in this uh, this company uh, or clients of this company about biotech uh, investments, etc., etc. Uh, but but uh, one of the things. Uh, you know, you've been talking about about these pillars. Uh, we've been talking about you know following uh, and then finding a, a, a finding a career journey that fit, that fits with you. And once you get you know to the end of the PhD, before you get to this aspect of uh, of of kind of retelling your story in a way that fits your your target audience, whichever it is you chose, there is this. There has to be this moment of finding where you want to go, yeah. and often you've been writing your thesis. You've had no real time to de- to dedicate to this. How much time should someone uh, allow themselves or expect to to spend before being ready to go on the job hunt? Because, yeah. mm-hmm. it, and I'm saying, and I know some people will be fairly pressured to to go go at it right away, but maybe. Uh, you know, is is a, a scenario where you f- you first go for a job job, you know, that will pay your bills, and then give yourself time to to find the other one after. Uh, you know, what are, what's what's kind of um, uh, best practices, and and what can people expect? Because I think there, there can be some impatience, right? I did my PhD, and now I can't find my job right away. What is this? My dream yeah, job? Yeah, no, I think that uh, well, you you have to be strategic, right? You didn't apply for a PhD on Monday and got admitted on Friday. That's not how, <laughs> right? And so I think that there are a lot of people who say, yeah, finding a job is going to take me three weeks. And it's the <laughs> same thing as preparing for a PhD. It's not an endeavor where you start Monday and you have an answer by Friday. Mm-hmm. Okay. But that's life, right? Even when you have a job, any job, you're always looking for your next opportunity. I just say we're all free agents and it all depends on the next ecosystem and how much they're going to pay you. But that never ends. Even when you're retired, you're going to find side gigs to keep yourself challenged. Or mm-hmm. I, I have um, been coaching people who are in their 70s and the 80s that oh, wow. still revisit those questions and see where is the next impetus for them to feel challenged, to feel that they have a purpose and to feel that they leave their legacy. Mm-hmm. So this is not a new and, oh yeah, one shot when you're applying for college, one shot when you're applying for your PhD, one shot when you finish your PhD and then you're set for life. Far mm-hmm. from that. Uh, but the place that you need to start is with core awareness of yourself, right? And and if you know yourself and, and how... Um, you have developed those four core skill sets plus the knowledge you apply them to and definitely what you like to maximize in your job. I know I like data, but mm-hmm. I know I don't like data the way that scientists love data. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I like data to understand enough of it to make a decision about where to go strategically from there. I love the aspect of figuring out how to align people towards a common goal and how to help the data and the stories blend together towards impact. That's Mm -hmm. what I love, right? I want to minimize being in front of a computer doing data analysis, but I love how the data informs the strategy and the implementation, the evaluation and the course correction from there. I love helping people change their minds. I love that. And so that's the, oh, give me a challenge where somebody has a limiting belief and I will go and try to understand that person. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, that's a good start. Now let's change your mind about this, this and that, right? And that's why I love coaching because generally people come to coaching because they have a limiting belief that prevents them from moving forward. Mm -hmm. And that's a very neat bubble where we can revisit that limiting belief, why it's there, why it served them in the past and how we can expand their mindset and their perspective so that it's no longer limiting them for looking at something else. So to go back to your question about timeline, I think it starts the moment you hit 20 to become more and more aware of yourself, more and more aware of how you were changing, how you're getting to know yourself, how you're growing as a person, how you're growing in your different responsibilities when you have a significant other, family, responsibilities of caretaking of elders or others in your family, and really the, the life you want to build for your own well-being. And then how does that career success definition change? 
as a result of that integration towards your bigger set of identities, identities as a partner, identities as a parent, identities as a professional. And I think to your point, I do believe that PhDs put a lot of their identity in their professional worth, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's so difficult to be um, a scientist de pointe. It's so difficult to be at the cutting edge to to that, that it becomes all-encompassing and very intense, but it doesn't have to be that way. So I think your point is well taken to say, it's not finish your PhD, then figure it out, but keep figuring it out as you do your PhD. That's mm-hmm. the first part. So that reflective awareness is critical. Now I want to go to another part, which is awareness of what others have done with a similar training to yours so that you can look at linear and nonlinear jumps. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, where academia still has a lot of work to do to recognize PhDs who jump outside of academia as very valid members of their community. Because we tend to overblow people who went from your program and became successful in the way that we think about postdoc, assistant professor, associate professor, and now the people that you meet at conferences and everybody is aha about them. But also, what are the other people doing? And that's the unique power of when I went into my PhD, there was no visibility about that. There was like one uh, career profiles outside of academia in, in um uh, next wave uh, science careers, which okay. was life-changing for me. But now with LinkedIn, you can do two-minute search, an advanced search on LinkedIn, plug in your uh, alma mater, plug in PhD in your major, and you can find wherever they are, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then that becomes your third part because all those people have their profiles online and they are generally very generous about telling others their terminology of why they've been successful and mm-hmm. how they're successful in their profile. So I generally copy all of their profile from like their name all the way down to their interest. And I paste that into a word density program. You can use Wordle. I use tag crowd, like tag, like a, a piece of closing uh, thing and then crowd like a lot of people.com it's free it's online it's been available for at least 15 years i use that uh, i plug those profiles in and i say give me the 80 words have mentioned more than twice and count them for me and it gives you those words with the size of the word based on the frequency that it appeared on the linkedin profile and that gives you that rosetta stone of what those people feel they're strong at that's recognized that's credible in their field and that's your currency that you mm-hmm. can start using if you want to contact them for additional information or if you want to start socializing these terms in mm-hmm. your own LinkedIn profile to be more fundable. One of the areas that I find really, really laughable is data science. I'm like, come on, it's just a good old univariate, multivariate <laughs> statistics. And now we are calling it data science. It's a brilliant marketing move. But at the end, it's just more statistics. People are super afraid of statistics, but all of a sudden data science becomes sexy. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, yeah. Well, and now I, I have interviewed some people in data science uh, and, uh, and yeah, they basically it's using, they, I think uh, that the industry has uh, preferred uh, software, let's say, or platforms to use like Python. Uh, and then the ones that are not preferred like R and MATLAB, but yeah, it's it's taking a chunk, it's taking a bunch of data and making sense making sense sense of the data and course course correction, like you said, and deciding etc cetera, etc. Cetera. No, it's true. The the, the thing that it, it, it that happens is, like you said, it's good marketing. Now, now everyone when when you see a job posting for data scientists, everyone kind of knows what it is. And whereas in the past you would have the, the data science is just collect, clean up, analyze data and synthesize it in recommendations about what mm-hmm. to do next. So let me give you an example. In the 80s, right, if you wanted to better understand <clears throat> music, you would go and major in musicology, mm-hmm. look at reams and reams and reams of uh, music sheets, mm-hmm. and try to figure out through those reams what is the rhythm, who is influenced by whom, and who has build that masterpiece and their influence from the past and their influence into the future based on that pattern of Mm -hmm. sound. 
wavelengths, lengths, bandwidth, all of those things. But you had to do it manually, right? Now we have digitized all of those music sheets and you have Spotify. And the data scientists are using, instead of qualitative data because it was music sheets, yeah. now they use quantitative data because it's bandwidth and where those notes were before on the on music sheets. Now there are numbers on gigantic database. Mm-hmm. And they're using linear and nonlinear regression systems to say, oh, that pattern of notes links to a certain rhythm that makes people feel a certain way. So if you like that kind of music, how about you listen to this? Or if you mm-hmm. like that kind of music, how about looking at that new artist? So that's what I'm saying, that a, a, a field like musicology, that is like the quintessential humanities field, mm-hmm. has become more data-driven because the data has been digitized and stored on cloud computing services that enables us to apply multivariate regression analysis on those things to arrive at better decisions about if you like listening to this, why don't you consider that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. Again, it's just a question of, of re- rewording and reframing. <laughs> but yeah, you were just you were just mentioning something <laughs> that uh, that I uh, that I really thought, find interesting and that I really believe in, which is the power. Uh, that LinkedIn has today, even for people who are in academia. And that that, that exercise you mentioned is just awesome, and I'm going to keep it, I'm going to steal it, (laughs) of uh, doing a word cloud of, of profiles of people that you find inspiring i think it's it's just it's, it's awesome it's a really great way especially for scientists again who like just have, you know looking at data in different ways it's, it's just really 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 awesome uh, but and, and i want to push uh, so you can do that with linkedin profiles you mm-hmm. can also do that with job descriptions of course. the more they want something the more they're going to mention it in their own terminology so you can create a word cloud of the job description and your resume and your cover letter, because a lot of uh, scientists or, or, or PhDs are very confused about the whole, oh my God, I have a CV, it's useless now, what do I do? But no, <laughs> it's not useless. But if you have the terminology from the job description, repurpose your 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 CV with those terms mm-hmm. so that you go back to your experience. You're not going to lie about anything, but you're going to repurpose the transferable skills that they are mentioning in the job posting and then apply those transferable skills to the knowledge piece that you applied them on. And then you become more credible in your mm-hmm. resume and in your cover letter to convince them that you have what they are looking for. Which in your metaphor is simply currency exchange. That's right. It's going <laughs> to the bank and change currency. Yeah, uh, it's it's super super interesting, and it's funny because I was going to ask you where to start. You know, when when you you're at the last you're the, in the last year, maybe you've turned in your thesis, and now you said, okay, now I have time to look. Uh, we already said don't don't be too eager and and uh, don't don't expect to find the right thing on day one. You you'll you'll maybe go through one two three jobs until you find uh, a place where you'll fit, but. Mm-hmm. And you will understand how you fit on the job, culture, and industry. And then you will be challenged there until a certain point. And then you will find that your growth will take you in a different place. Mm-hmm. Right? And then you will need something different. Maybe it's different kinds of colleagues, a different kind of job, a promotion, a different kind of field because you become interested in something different but you will actually be discerning about what is next in a way that if you have an 85% fit, you will recognize it. And then the 15%, you might invest in other areas of your life to find it or cultivate it, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that there is this illusion that you should be all-encompassing happy at work and blissfully going to work every day. That that doesn't happen. But if you have a strong 85% feeling about who you work with, how things get done, what your contributions are towards something you find important to contribute to, then you're set Mm -hmm. and you will find a sense of productivity. You will find a sense of belonging with your colleagues and you will find a sense of fulfillment and resilience when things get tough 
because mm -hmm. guess what? Things get tough everywhere. Yeah, I <laughs> know it's true. It's funny because you, you, uh, by the end of my uh, of my stay at the the first company that I that I worked in uh, for almost five years, there is where that's where I got an inkling that I could go into translation because within the company I saw projects coming in Portuguese. I speak Portuguese. Uh, like the people were coming to ask me, hey, can you just check this Portuguese uh, verbiage here? And I was like, okay. So in the pharma domain, even with clients that are in the US, there's projects coming in in other languages. Hmm. And that's that's where I, my brain started looking into that. And then eventually a door opened and I took it uh, uh, to, to, to go to, to work on and my I own. Think I, I, something very, very important that you mentioned, two things actually. You had an inkling and you had a surprise. Mm -hmm. So that surprise mingle with that inkling is a great way to do exploration, mm -hmm. right? And so in the course of your PhD, you will have many surprises and inkling. That's where you can focus more of your attention to cultivate that knowledge and seeing whether you can turn that into a money-making endeavor. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting because uh, in our conversation in French, you, we talked about finding your tribe. Uh, mm -hmm. You you talked, uh, and and here we're talking about finding, I guess what what interests you uh, or what uh, where you can thrive in eventually professionally. And uh, I've had people I've talked with who said during my whole PhD, the moment I remember where like I was happy, you know, I felt awesome, I felt great at what I did was doing outreach in schools, extracting banana DNA. Mm -hmm. And now the person is, uh, well, now she's, she's working freelance, but for a while she was working for a, a big a non-profit uh, in uh, managing all their teaching content. You know, it was, uh, uh, it's Fiona Robinson. She was uh, uh, working for the World Federation of Hemophilia. And so she was, you know, helping the, the organization communicate all this content all this learning content to people with hemophilia around the world. Mm -hmm. But it's funny, what you said is exactly that. And it's if you can identify during your, your PhD these moments that are not research, but where you feel or or maybe ask people around you, you know, where you know where where did, where have you seen me really shine mm -hmm. that is not the bench? That can be a that can be a very good indicator of, of absolutely and that's why you know going for those annual performances that are in those knowledge first and then those four pillars can give you that feedback loop mm -hmm. i also think that one aspect that we haven't talked about but that can be very very um revealing and an accelerator towards self-knowledge is uh career assessments right and there mm -hmm. are a boatload of them and some are pure crap and others are really really good and so i think the ones that i I find the most helpful uh, are, are probably the, the, the Gallup Strengths Finder, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, instead of fixing what's wrong, let's recognize and cultivate what's right about you. Because there's this notion that in order to be valuable, your work has to be hard, mm -hmm. has to feel difficult, has to feel painful to you. And it doesn't have to be that way because something, if it comes easy to you, you can cultivate it and really make that one of your landmark strengths mm -hmm. that you can bring at work. So we all have talents and you can talent plus time investment and work investment becomes a strength that you can make money at like your communication skills in more than one language mm -hmm. and your ability to kind of serve as that bridge of communication and understanding across language barriers about very technical terms that are informed by your PhD knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's something that you have cultivated as a strength and now you're putting to market as a money-making venture. But guess what? You're also putting this um, podcast together to increase the visibility of people like me and others so that we build a sense of understanding and effectiveness mm -hmm. and connecting with our tribe. So I want to go back to the tribe piece that you mentioned, because I think it's critical. So the research and self-knowledge that you can accelerate via the Wordle or the tag crowd analysis that we mentioned towards those career assessments that we just talked about is really important because it can give you the confidence to take a risk to connect with people outside 
mm-hmm. of your bubble of understanding and gain through those connections an exploration, a discovery, but also a validation of what it's going to be like in their field and what to expect so that you can go from a broad idea of what it means to be an X to what it actually is. And we all do that as PhDs where we, we hope and we think our PhD is going to be one way and then the reality of the PhD hits and it's like, oh my God. And so this expectation versus reality exists for all types of career path of career fields. And so the more you can discover and validate what that thought process you have and that expectation versus the reality and being of that job can be via networking and connecting with people who have been in these fields will help you build the confidence, credibility, and competitiveness you will need then in your Mm -hmm. resume and your interviewing skills in order to secure the job that you're now aware is more of a fit for you based on that place of awareness, connection, and competitiveness that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. So finding your tribe, that's what it means. It means identifying people on LinkedIn. It means having informational interviews with them. And I know you have fantastic content about conducting informational interviews. I'll share with you. I just published two articles about proactive networking and reactive networking for people who are looking for jobs so that they know how to interact and intersect in their networking efforts versus the recruiting efforts so that that they can feed in one into the other to convert more applications into interviews and more interviews into offers Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of confusion out there about how to leverage those things for awareness, for connection, and then for competitiveness. Mm -hmm. So I think that the whole rank of things is super important and it starts with awareness. It builds towards building a new community of like-minded people in your next field so that you can become credible when it becomes time to write your resume, your cover letter, interview, or even when you get started, so that on your onboarding, you can learn for the first 30, 60, 90 days and start making an impact in your new role. Mm-hmm. Rim, we're getting to the end of the interview, and I, I hope people who are listening uh, had a, a notepad and pen or pencil, because there's a lot of gold nuggets that you've been sharing so far. Uh, for sure, these two articles that you published, you are going to share with me the links, and I will share them with the listeners in on the episode show notes because I think it's going to be a, they're going to be good companions to to our conversation. Um, if people uh, were you know want to reach out to you, something you said resonated with them, they want to dig a little deeper. Where can they reach you? So, um, yeah, so I, I publish articles every once in a while on, on LinkedIn. They're welcome to, to follow me on, on LinkedIn. I do that as more of a, my, my volunteering experience, mm-hmm. if you will, to share some of the wisdom that I have captured along the way. And so, uh, following me on, on, on LinkedIn and letting me know what articles, uh, uh resonate with you. I'm also very active on GradGrid and um, try and help as much as I can through that uh, in my personal time and my volunteering time. Perfect. I will also put the link to the Grad Grid group on LinkedIn too. Uh, and uh, Marim, is there, I'm just asking, and we didn't talk about this before, is there any uh, you know, webinar, training, anything that you're doing that's coming up that you're planning or, or any publication uh, just uh, so that people might, you know, know and and um, you know save the date or be ready for anything that's coming up with you. Uh, yes, so I'm writing a book about uh, career success, and I'm going to um, call that Agile Impact, or that's my working title, right? Because we need to be agile and we need to be impact driven in order mm-hmm. to be. Uh, successful in our career. So I'll start publishing um, more and more of that content. And I'm, I'm going to start the pre-sales probably in the spring and summer and uh, publish it around August. Mm-hmm. So I'll have certain chapters there for PhD only, others for master's level and others for undergrads, because I think that at each stage of that education level, there are different kinds of interpretations of the four uh, skill sets and the, the the knowledge piece that I look forward to sharing with people. So any 
anyone who has comments, suggestions, wants their uh, story to be integrated into that effort, I'd be more than happy to uh, to be in touch and in contact. So I'll post that on my feed on, on LinkedIn and uh, hope that people can check it out when it comes out. Perfect. Uh, and, uh, you know, whenever you do, uh, again, share the link and I'll, and I'll put it in the show notes because I think uh, there's going to be a lot of, of great stuff in there. I love your approach. I love the way you have uh, systematized the, the, this process. And uh, a lot of us, when we come out, we're a bit lost. Uh, we There's this language, uh, this terminology, like you said, that we don't know yet. And anything that is structured like that is going to help us. We love reading. We know how to read. So a book is always a good thing. <laughs> um, Rim. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I think uh, you shared really act, like great actionable items that people can work on based on on our conversation. Uh, this this thing of, of uh, the power of, of LinkedIn and of data mining LinkedIn is really one that stuck with me from this whole conversation. I've, I've you know I've been a champion of LinkedIn as a networking platform for a while. I always tell people if someone's on LinkedIn, they are ready to to communicate. It's a it's a it's a connection platform. So don't be afraid of reaching out and, and asking for an informational interview. But this kind of data mining aspect was really it was really a tasty one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so try- I think you know it's 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 all about empathy, right? So mm-hmm. help build their empathy and themselves recognizing themselves in you is a booster of that. Mm-hmm. To use their own terminology because then you become more credible and you become a kindred spirit faster, mm-hmm. right? And we are researchers and therefore do your homework, right? If instead of, hey, I found you on LinkedIn and I saw that you were doing blah, blah, I would love 15 minutes of your time, I would say no to that. But if yeah. somebody says, hey, we seem to have a lot in common, you were in neuroscience, I... I was in musicology. You indicated that you uh, went cross-sector. I'm interested in, in, in careers in nonprofit and private sector. And you mentioned that you really like uh, boosting uh, diversity and equity in education. I've been volunteering uh, in my field in different schools, especially in charter schools. Would love to exchange a few uh, minutes uh, of conversation. Can I get on your schedule? It becomes much more uh, for me, okay, that person is not going to ask me how I went from X to Y, which I have like 15 <laughs> blog posts about. Uh, but instead, we're going to have a substantive conversation about DEI and education. I'm much more on board with that than with the basics, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that bring the level up in terms of informing your outreach, your conversations with empathy and synergistic common things you have with that person. And I have a couple of blog posts about that on how to research people, what to ask during informational interviews to level it up so that you can establish your credibility there faster as well. So I look forward to hearing feedback about our conversation. And of course, uh, thank you so much for putting Papa PhD uh, together and anything that I can do to help, I'm happy to. Well, uh, it's my pleasure first, and uh, I will I will try to to keep this uh, to make this better and better, and to to keep bringing interesting people and interesting conversations to the listeners. So again, thank you for this for your time, and uh, and all the best for your projects. Thank you so much, and you as well. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.